Well, let's start up with time of prayer, and then we'll get into the book of Revelation again. Father, we just praise you for such a magnificent book, and we've already seen just how awesome uh, your personhood is and the things that we've already learned from just the beginning of the book. And as we get into more of the detail and some of the latter portions of the book, we're going to be more impressed with who you are and just what your plan is and how you've been working throughout history to bring things to the point that in the future they will fulfill all that you have desired, all that you have planned, and all that you intended in every detail. So we praise you for that, that we don't have to worry about situations today. We don't have to worry about our personal futures because we belong to you and we know the outcome. We know what you're going to accomplish. And we can even be confident that as future saints are going to suffer far more than we will ever even imagine suffering, that anything that enters our experience is under your sovereign control. So we praise you for that. And we just pray that you would exercise that sovereign control over our class, that you would accomplish in it what you desire. And Lord, I desire to be a a cleansed vessel and one that is able to communicate your word clearly. And I just pray that you would enable me to do that. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at one of my favorite books, and I consider this one of the most important books of all of the Bible, as we've been saying. So we will pick up where we left off. This will be session 13, believe it or not. First 12 sessions seem to just go by very rapidly, at least for me. I don't know about you. We will pick up in chapter 8, and the uh, main thrust are what are called the trumpet judgments. So before I get into the trumpet judgments, let me just give you a real quick review since it's been a while. In fact, a review of uh, the first 11 chapters. We didn't get that far, but this slide will kind of put us a little bit forward. I've divided the book into three major divisions. The first division, first three chapters. First three chapters I see focusing in on the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, which deals with chapter 1. But I've also included through chapter 3, Jesus Christ among the seven churches. And I see the three chapters as closely related and intimately related in such a way that I think it's a division in itself. Chapter 4 seems to take a different direction. In fact, it's all in the future, and I distinguish it from the first three chapters. Some of you are doing an exegetical paper, and one of the things you want to attempt to do in exegeting a passage, you want to try to capture every portion of that passage that you're exegeting, And in the case of exegeting a whole book, you want to try to capture the essence of thought of that book. And what are the divisions? In other words, how does the author put his material together? And how does he interact and weave everything together? So on the big scale, I see three major divisions where you see kind of a radical difference in each of the three divisions. So Division 1, we spent a lot of time on the first three chapters. And in exegeting, also, you want to try to capture in a few words what is being communicated or the meaning as succinctly 
and also as clearly as you can, and this is my attempt to capture the essence of the first three chapters. The next division, which we got into last time, I call it the tribulation from Jesus Christ. You might notice that Jesus Christ is in uh, each of these divisions because I see him as basically the major personage in the whole book. And these judgments are not just random. They're not just uh, the result of man's sin or they're not as a result of just natural causes. Behind them, and particularly the seal judgments that we looked at, are actually orchestrated by Jesus Christ, by God himself. So I put Christ in that to capture that underlying everything that we have in the book of Revelation. It's basically the outworking of what God, Jesus Christ, has designed. And the next major thing involved in uh, this portion of Scripture are tribulations. This is the portion of Scripture of the book of Revelation that deals with all of the judgments that are yet future. And there are many of them, not only during this period of time, but we'll see at the very end, they kind of accumulate together. So that's the bulk of the book. I see that from chapter 4 to chapter 18. So most of the book is actually dealing with a very, very negative subject, a subject that our culture recoils against. The message of the book of Revelation just grinds against the grain of the culture in which we live in. And I'm not talking about just the unbeliever. I'm talking about within the church. The church doesn't like this portion of Scripture. And there are many within uh, even evangelical circles that, for example, don't believe in eternal punishment. They like to soften that, and they don't like the concept of God's judgment. So they avoid the book of Revelation and other portions like that. But that's the major theme. And if we believe that this is Scripture and that John is inspired and this is what God wants us to know, then this is something that we as believers, this is addressed to the churches. Remember the seven churches. And I'll talk about a major thrust in a moment in terms of who's the subject there. But this is written for us that we might understand these things. So there's a purpose behind it. One of the things I'm going to try and weave more so than what I did in the first part is I want to give you some applications as well. How can you take this passage that speaks of these horrendous things and teach it in a church setting, for example? And I have taught the whole book of Revelation in a church setting, verse by verse, pretty much what I'm sharing with you and in some cases, even more detail because I had more time to go into some detail and I would stress more of the applicational aspects. So I will weave in, in some of the passages, some of these applications, and I'll just call it to your attention. And uh, these are applications we can draw. In other words, these are things that are directly applicable to us today, even though the events themselves are beyond the church age and we're not going to experience these things Obviously, the Holy Spirit has a purpose in giving them to us as the church today, so we, we need to find applications. And these are just examples. As you study the book, as you read the book, you can come up with other applications as well. Okay? So the major portion of the book is tribulation that comes from Jesus Christ. And in that, we'll pick up from that tonight and deal with the rest of the passage exegetically. I want to mention, just by way of reminder, I mentioned last time, most eschatology is Jewish. Most of eschatology is Jewish eschatology. 
And what I mean by that is it pertains primarily to the nation of Israel. And if you remember, I just briefly in a couple of 30 seconds or so just kind of listed for you the major items of the eschatology of the church. And obviously you can spend some time studying those, but most of the Bible, most of the Old Testament, most of the book of Revelation in terms of who the events are related to are primarily the people of Israel. So I I like to think in terms of eschatology as primarily Jewish. The church has a relationship, but the church is gone for one thing, at least from the viewpoint that we are taking in this course, pre-tribulational. In other words, the church is raptured before a period of time that's called the, the tribulation. There are many passages. I even gave you an introduction when we got to chapter 6. And all the way before Israel was a nation, God had already foresaw, and obviously he's omniscient, not only foresaw it, but revealed and predicted where the nation of Israel was going to go. They were going to depart from him. They were going to apostatize. They were going to rebel. They were not going to follow him. And throughout their history, that's been true. Even in Deuteronomy, before they're a nation, we have prophecies that deal with tribulation. Tribulation is the main theme or one of the main themes of all of the prophets. All of the Old Testament prophets predict a period of time. And it's the Old Testament. In other words, it's the Jewish scriptures that actually define for us the parameters and the time frame of a period of time we call tribulation. The book of Daniel specifies that it's a seven-year period of time. So we have those parameters and other parameters all in uh, Hebrew Scriptures. So I see eschatology as predominantly Jewish. And as I've already mentioned, chapters 4 through 18 is this period of time that the Old Testament predicted and in fact will take place in the future. And John is given the last amount of detail that adds to all of the Old Testament revelation concerning this awful and horrendous period of time. That's Jewish. And it's Jewish because we believe that the church is taken out before and does not experience all the things that are described in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 on, except some things that take place in heaven that we'll look at in chapter 19. Another major theme is God is not going to abandon his people. In fact, he's going to utilize that period of time in history to arouse within the nation of Israel people that will rise up and believe in him. Others will continue to reject him. It will also be a period of time where the nations will come into a saving relationship with God as well. So we will look at this as a period of restoration. That's the only bright spot of this period of time that is described in not only the prophets, but in the book of Revelation. And we looked at the central passage last time. Chapter 7 is basically the only positive thing that takes place. And we mentioned that God begins by raising up 144,000 in chapter 7 that trust in him. Well, I'll expand on that in a moment. So Jewish eschatology looks forward to a time when Israel will be the center of world history once again, at least the center of God's dealings 
the world still won't acknowledge that, but the, uh, the Jewish people will be the center of what God is doing again. Israel will be prominent in even this tribulation period. And we have hints of that in the book of Revelation. And obviously the central event is the coming of Messiah. That's an Old Testament concept. Messiah did come. Israel rejected their Messiah. And when Messiah came, Messiah predicted that he would return. And there are many passages that are left unfulfilled, and those will find their ultimate fulfillment. But the Messiah is Jewish. He's not only Jewish in background, but he is coming for the nation of Israel. Others participate as they are related to Israel's Messiah. So this is Jewish eschatology. We went over a lot of this in a little bit more detail in the first part of the course. When Messiah comes, the major thing Messiah is going to do is establish the kingdom. And again, we have literally thousands of passages in the Old Testament relate to the kingdom. And the book of Revelation also is going to deal with the kingdom. So you can actually break up the book of Revelation in terms of these major themes of Jewish eschatology. Chapter 4 through 18 is this period of tribulation that God uses to restore the nation of Israel in preparation for the coming and arrival of their Messiah. And then when Messiah returns in chapter 19, then he establishes his kingdom. That's chapter 20. It's all Jewish eschatology. And then after that, there's a kind of an extension or maybe uh, it's not real clear. But there seems to be a period period of an age. I don't want to even use the word time. But there's something that takes place after the kingdom that seems different from the kingdom. And I see a distinction. That's chapters 21 and 22. That seems to be the eternal state. So this is all Jewish. Jewish eschatology. That's a reminder. Back to our outline. This period of time, tribulation, begins with the subdivision from chapter 4 to chapter 7. I see those chapters working together, fitting together structurally. And in that portion, we have 4 and 5. And I mentioned you need to keep track of where the scene is taking place. Some of the visions that John has are visions that he sees things in heaven. Those are radically different from the visions that he has of things that are taking place on the earth. So those things pertaining to this seventh seal scroll, which is the theme of four through seven, all of it begins in heaven. And it begins before the throne of God with God seated on that throne with worship. And that's a main theme of the book of Revelation in itself, just the whole theme of worship. And we'll talk some more about that because it continues as we work our way through the book. So this is a heavenly scene. And in that setting, We have another person that arises, the Lamb. He is the only one that is able to open the seals. No one else has the authority. No one has the uh, opportunity. He is the only one. And all of that is set up. And then in chapter 6, we have the opening of the seals, at least six of them in chapter 6. And as they are opened... Now, there's different views as to the sequence. In fact, one of the things we're going to do in this hour, I'm going to give you some of the views of how to treat the book, the chronology of the book. It's one of the major problems of the book. 
how do all these events work together? How do they fit together chronologically? And there's not a real consistent or a viewpoint that everybody agrees on. And I'm talking about those that take the book very seriously. Conservatives, those that have a high view of Scripture. One of the views that I have in terms of chronology pertains to these six seal judgments in chapter 6. I see them as a kind of a broad picture of the seven years, a kind of a panorama. The main things that are going to happen in terms of judgment during this period of time. I'll remind you of some of those here in this slide. So the six seal judgments. One thing that kicks off at the very beginning of this seven-year period and by the way, this, this coordinates a lot of other passages like the Daniel 9 passage. Seems to coordinate with Jesus' outline of eschatology in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And it seems to coordinate with some other passages and some of the other prophets. It seems that a piece is introduced in order to bring a personage to prominence. That person on a white horse later on is probably going to be given more detail. We uh, see him as the Antichrist. He resembles Christ, but the Antichrist is going to be a messianic type person who's going to basically uh, impersonate a savior. And the people are going to flock to him because all of these judgments are falling upon the world. And they're going to look for somebody that can solve these problems. And at the very beginning, here rises this person that seems to be able to do that. And in large measure, he's going to do some miraculous things even. So he's going to introduce a piece. And I think the treaty or the uh, contract or the agreement that is spoken of in Daniel tells us that that is the key point at which this seven-year period begins. And it's this piece that this treaty affects that allows this person to come to prominence. That peace is short-lived. There's war or this peace is taken away. And much of the seven years is going to be a period of conflict amongst the nations, amongst different peoples. Lots of bloodshed. We're going to see lots of that even more, even more so. As a result of that, we have famines predicted. And by the way, these parallel... The description that Jesus Christ has in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, that's one of the supports for this concept or this chronological idea of these being a panorama or an overall picture of the seven-year period. And if you have war and if you have famine, what follows right behind is death. So we have the four horsemen, and the fourth horseman is death on a large scale. And I think there's going to be lots of bloodshed, lots of death. In fact, inconceivable. You, you can't imagine. Uh, we just saw this tragedy that is in the news. What was it? Twelve people died. It's a tragedy. I mean, each family that lost somebody, I mean, that's dear to them. But imagine virtually every family losing somebody because half the population is going to be destroyed during the seven-year period of time. We'll see that. One of the seal judgments, in fact, this seal judgment, a third of all of the population of the earth is wiped out in one judgment. So unimaginable. There's also going to be, throughout this period of time, probably not initially, but uh, as the seven years progress, those that trust in Jesus Christ, will, most of those will die. And they won't die as a result of judgment. They will die as a result of persecution. 
This messianic figure, the only ones that will be a threat to his kingdom, are those that give their allegiance to another king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will suffer dearly for it. So most believers will not survive the great tribulation. So chapter 7 tells us that there's an innumerable multitude before the throne. They're martyred. They're dead. They're in heaven. So persecution and martyrdom is going to be a constant theme during the seven years. And the period seems to end with these geophysical and astrophysical cataclysms. We saw that last time. And they seem to be immediately preceding the second coming. And if they are parallel with those that Jesus describes, then that would fit that chronology. And we'll come back to some of these in some of the other judgments as well. So that's kind of a quick overview of what we've looked at so far. We looked at chapter 7 as well. I see it related. The origin of these judgments are in heaven. The openings of the scroll are on earth. And as the scroll is open, these judgments are revealed. And we can see what they will do on earth. And it seems the outcome of these judgments is an awakening, as well as the Holy Spirit just drawing people to himself, an awakening of the nation of Israel. And I think we have hints of that. A little bit more detail will be given in some of the later chapters as well. So the outcome is the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. The greatest revival ever will be in the future. Greater than the Great Awakening. Greater than even God working in the first century when Messiah was amongst the people. That's chapter 7, along with some other passages that we'll look at. So that's a brief view. We're going to pick up in chapter 8, I see through verse 11 as the next subdivision. And by the way, all of this is on your outline sheet there. This is basically a an overview of my exegetical outline. Now, my outline has a lot more detail, and I'll expound some of that detail as we, we move through. So the second uh, subdivision in my exegetical outline, I summarize chapters 8 through 11 dealing with the trumpet judgments. Now, there's some other things in there by way of interlude, but they seem to be structured, at least in terms of the structure of the book, around trumpet judgments. We have the the first six of them in chapters 8 and 9. And then chapters 10 and 11 are an interlude that are related to the trumpets because we have the seventh one at the end of chapter 11. And that's the reason structurally I put this portion together. All right? I guess this is still more of a reminder of where we've been. Just summarizing on our timeline, here's the seven-year period that Daniel predicts. These blue lines represent the rapture. There may be a period of time we don't know between the rapture and the signing of that covenant. It's the signing of the covenant, keep in mind, that kicks off the seven-year period of time that is Jewish. Israel is on a clock. Israel is on a time frame. The church is not. So the rapture is not the key impetus to the the seven-year period. It's the signing of that covenant. Daniel makes that clear. Okay. So there may be a, a gap of time, and we don't have any revelation concerning that. So we don't know how long that may be. Maybe minutes. I don't know maybe years. We have this seven-year period 
we've already looked, and I gave allusion in the first seal judgment to uh, this covenant that is signed. That is the event that kicks everything off. Now, we haven't got to chapter 11. We will, not tonight. Personally, in terms of the chronology, it makes a lot more sense. We know that they will have uh, a ministry for three and a half years. The text tells us that. The question whether it's at first three and a half or the second three and a half. It makes more sense to me that they would prophesy in the first three and a half. So probably somewhat uh, close to the signing of the covenant. God's going to raise up two individuals that we'll look at in chapter 11. So I put them early. I believe uh, it makes sense to me that their ministry will have an impact. They will have an impact on what are described as the first fruits in chapter 14. They're called the first fruits. We'll see that. A group numbered in chapter 7, 144,000. They're all Jewish. So God begins that process of bringing and restoring people to himself. And I think the first group of people that respond are these specific individuals. They're all men. Sorry. <laughs> God's choice, not mine. <laughs> 144,000 that seem to respond. And again, it makes sense that they respond very early. They will have a ministry throughout. They are sealed in chapter 7. The meaning of that sealing seems to indicate that they will be preserved through that seven-year period. They will survive it. In other words, they will escape the judgments. God is going to protect them. So all of these three things take place almost simultaneously very early in the, uh, the period of time. That results, chapter 7 tells us that there's an innumerable multitude that are converted from every nation. Now, that would include Jewish people. So a large number of Jewish people, this is where the nation begins to respond. And I think the nation will respond as these judgments unfold. People come to the realization that it's either the Lord Jesus Christ or death, basically, or judgment. So lots of conversions throughout, in fact, a great revival. Those believers will be persecuted, as we already saw from the fifth seal judgment, and persecution will persist throughout. I think it will begin early in the period of time. So I see these seal judgments as a panoramic picture. Now I'm going to give you different views as to the chronology here. This is the one that I, I favor. So these kind of span the whole period of time. And let's take a look at chapter 8. Before we do that, I'm going to give you the chronology, but let's just introduce it. So in verses 1 through 5, we're introduced to the seventh seal. Notice verse 1. And when he broke the seventh seal. So there are seven seals. We've only heard of six of them. And then after the opening of the six, now we get to the seventh seal. All right. So what's going to happen when the seventh seal is open? Well, now it's going to tell us it appears that the seventh seal is composed of the seven trumpets. That's what the next few verses indicate, the first five verses there. So we have the seventh seal. In fact, let's read it real quickly, and then we'll come back and refer to some of the detail in a moment. And when we broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to him. 
And then it's going to go on. I won't read it all because we're going to come back to this. But we have the seven trumpets now that are basically the detail of the seventh seal. So it's kind of a series of new judgments that have their own designation. Let's look at verse 1. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. Now, one commentator said something to the effect, trying to interpret the silence. He says, the silence in heaven has made a great deal of noise amongst the commentators as to why we have this. Because it's the only place that speaks of silence in the book of Revelation. So you have all these weird views as to what what is the meaning behind the silence here. Why the silence? All the way from the viewpoint that uh, women are not going to be part of heaven because there's silence there. <laughs> Uh, I heard one guy say that, but it was just a joke. <laughs> Some of the viewpoints, uh, the preterists who see virtually all prophecy fulfilled before 70 A.D. or and or including 70 A.D., obviously they have to put it in 70 A.D., and they would say something to the effect that th- there was a lull or there was a calm, there was a silence before the destruction of 70 A.D., and they'll support it by some silence back then. Well, we reject the entire preterist viewpoint. The the historicists there all over the place with their viewpoints, and in terms of their interpretation, they see the church virtually throughout the book of Revelation. So they would say something like along the lines of freedom granted to the church under Constantine, because they try to fit the church into the book of Revelation, and they pull out these little bits and pieces here to kind of tie it to history. Well, we rejected the historicist viewpoint as well. Well, I won't go through I've got a list of 18 different viewpoints. <laughs> All the way from the everlasting rest of the saints, things primarily related to the church. Most commentary try to put the church in the tribulation, by the way. It's only those conservative, premillennial, primarily scholars that don't. The best view is probably a silence of solemn expectation. And I think what we have, or we've already seen throughout, we've seen a lot of emphasis on loudness. For example, in chapter 4, verse 5, we have loud thunder, if you, uh, if you want to turn there real quickly. 4, 5. And from the throne proceeded flashings of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Loud thunder. In chapter 4, verse 8, And four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy is the Lord God. 5, 9, this is loud worship. Notice in verse 9, And they sang a new song, Worthy art thou. And this is a multitude of people. Uh, speaking out, 710 worship before the Lord in multitudes of people. So you can imagine loud sounds. 710, and they cry out with a loud voice. So it's not quiet, whimpering, silent worship. It's overt, and it's thunderous, loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne. So this is proclaimed loudly. So you have all of the worship. And there's other passages that we'll look at later on that emphasize just the uh, the magnitude of the worship. We have a lot of loud angels that speak out. 5-2. Notice that. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. See the emphasis there? Voices of thunder. We won't read all of the verses. Chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, 3, 5, 7. Voice of thunder. The martyrs cry out with a loud voice under the altar. So it's not quietness that's going on. For angels, they speak with a loud voice in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And then all of a sudden, we have silence. And I think if you're just keeping track, and if you're kind of working your way through the book, you have all these emphasis on loudness. Now, all of a sudden, you have silence. It's almost like you need to catch your breath here. You know, something's coming. Something's brewing. Something's going to happen here. And I think what it's intended to do is give this heightened idea of what we have coming is is something that we need to not only pay close attention to, but take shelter, basically. So it's kind of a solemn expectation of what God is about to do. So what we have in chapters 8 and 9 are horrendous. And God's judgment is horrendous. And it's intended to emphasize to us the severity of sin, the damage that sin does, and the seriousness that God takes in dealing with it. And what God is finally doing in the book of Revelation, in fact, the martyrs cry out, How long, how long, Lord, before you avenge the blood of the saints, basically? How long are you going to put up with sin? How long are you going to allow evil to do its destruction? The book of Revelation, God is bringing culmination. God is bringing consummation to his plan to end evil. The world wants an end to evil, and they blame God for it. But what they're really asking for is they're asking for judgment because God, that's the process that God uses to end evil. He, judgment is God separating evil from good. That's what judgment is. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. So to the believer, to the angels, to the martyred saints, judgment is actually what we yearn for and desire that God bring an end to evil. In order to bring an end to evil, he has to separate, and the separating process is judgment. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. And the silence kind of prepares us. Take a deep breath and wait and see what's going to happen. And that's what we have in chapter 8. And then in verse 2, And I saw seven angels who stand before God. Notice the beginning there. And I saw. How many times have we seen that already? These are a series of things that God gave to John in vision form. He sees them. Now, I don't know if he saw them in his mind or if he saw them in some uh, visible way. It almost, in some cases, it almost seems like he is actually seeing almost like a movie played out visually because he goes about describing what he sees. This is one of the key words throughout the book of Revelation. You see it consistently. Every vision is introduced with the Greek word eideo, and oftentimes it'll have and before it, like it does here, kai ideo, or kai idon is the actual form that is there, kai idon, and I saw. In other words, it's sequential. Not that the events are necessarily sequential, but we see consistently, and I saw, and what uh, John is giving us is the sequence of visions that he saw. 
not necessarily the sequence in time of the events. Now, you need to keep that in mind. If he were giving us a sequence of the time of events, there would be probably fewer problems in terms of trying to solve the chronological issues of the book. So when it has, and I saw, remember, sometimes it's sequential in time, but sometimes it's not. Otherwise, we would have some contradictions in the text. But every time you have, and I saw, it's always sequential in terms of the unfolding of these visions that God gave to John. And then he records them, and we have them in the book of Revelation. So he sees these seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And then verse 3, and another angel. Now when we get to chapter 14, because chapter 14 is so full of angels, but even this passage is full of angels. Here's here's the seven angels, and now in, in verse 3 we have another angel. When we get to chapter 14, I'm going to give you a, not an angelology, but at least some of the major things that angels do. I think John gives us kind of an outline of some of the major ministries of angels overall. And most of them are in the book of Revelation. And they do a lot of specific things that we'll see. And there's other passages elsewhere that kind of support the the ministry of angels. But notice the prominence right off the bat. And another angel came and stood at the altar. Now the question is, is this the altar of incense or is this the uh, brazen altar? More than likely in this context, most of the scholars are inclined towards the altar of incense. Now at Beersheba in Israel, the southern part of Israel, there's a well-preserved altar of incense. Can't build a big enough fire there to burn an animal, so that's an altar of incense. But this is probably what they looked like in Israel. It's restored, but that's something like what looked like in the temple. And for some reason, they found one in Beersheba. There's a prayer here prayer for divine justice. Another angel came and stood at the altar uh, holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him. Now, in the Old Testament, incense was was a symbol or used symbolically to portray prayer to God. Because when you burned incense, you'd have not only the the smoke, but the aroma would uh, go up into the air somewhat visually representing the prayers of the saints, reaching God. And consistently in the book of Revelation, we have incense quite frequently. And it's connected in some passages very clearly with with prayer. So we have a prayer for divine justice here as we read further. So we have this golden censer and much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar. Now, this isn't, this one's not a golden one. But remember, this is probably a heavenly scene because of verse 1. Remember, you need to keep track of that. Silence in heaven. And then John sees a vision of seven angels. That probably follows that he's seeing something in heaven. So this is kind of the heavenly counterpart to what you would find in the temple. The prayers of all the saints. We've already seen this is probably an allusion to chapter 6. Do you remember that? In fact, uh, why don't we turn back to it since it's been a few weeks. Notice verse 9, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, that's probably the altar of incense again, 
although there's debate over that. The souls of those, so probably these are martyrs. The souls of those had been slain. They're dead. Because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are praying, they are praying in heaven that God will basically bring an end to evil. This is not a prayer of getting even or vengeance, even though that word is used. The idea here is it's a yearning that all of us have that God will ultimately and completely deal with evil, and they are aware that God has to do that through judgment. So if an unbeliever wants God to end evil, what you need to do is remind him what God must do to end evil. He must bring what we have in the book of Revelation. So all of us yearn for that, and certainly those that are before the Lord, they are crying out and praying. So I think in chapter 8, it's kind of an allusion back to that, the prayer that we already saw. And the incense is, is representative of that prayer. So it's going to add to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. So this is heavenly. Then verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. See, the imagery there kind of goes along. You can't see prayers, right? But as you see the smoke, that represented the prayers of the saints. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God, out of the angel's hand, and the angel took the censer, that was the device that they used to burn the incense, took the censer, filled it with the fire of the altar. Now, this would be done in the temple. And he threw it to the earth. Okay, so now it's shifting to the earth. This is a heavenly scene, and now this incense is thrown to the earth, and there followed peel. There you go, peals of thunder again. So it's the judgment is coming. Thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning. So it's it's a vivid display of God's glory, outpouring of His judgment. And this is frequent also in the book of Revelation. Thunder, lightning associated with judgment. And an earthquake. So here's an earthquake. One of the things that takes place during this period of time are earthquakes. And there are several earthquakes in the book of Revelation as well. And then, beginning in verse 6, we're going to see as each of these trumpets are sounded, another series of judgments. Trumpets were used in Israel. If you just do a word study and put all the passage together, you will find that trumpets were used in uh, the Old Testament for a variety of reasons and occasions. And I've got a list of the ones that I have found, at least doing a word study on them. In some cases, they use trumpets to uh, assemble the nation for a variety of means. Sometimes on uh, feast days or I would assume on other occasions that were not related to the feasts as well. For example, in Numbers 10.2, it says, Make yourself two trumpets of silver of hammered work. You shall make them and you shall use them for summoning. Summoning the congregation 
and for having the camps set out. So as they began to move in numbers, they were in the wilderness, they would assemble the nation in order to get ready, we're going to leave, we're going to move to a new location. So there's an example in the usage of trumpets. And by the way, don't think of a trumpet with a little, uh, what do you call them? <laughs> but yeah, this was more a ram's horn was what they used, shafar. They were also used probably mostly during war. And in war, and uh, you can imagine they could have been used for a variety of means, again, to assemble and to organize the Israelite army or portions of it. And I would envision also to give signals in the midst of battle, in the midst of war. Maybe three sounds meant retreat or whatever. There's lots of examples of that. Numbers, this is for alarm. In other words, an enemy is about to invade. Numbers 10-9. And when you go out to war in your, your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets. So they were used. Okay, they're coming. Take shelter. Run. Whatever. Also in uh, Judges 6, when Israel was conquering the land, also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city. What city is that? New York? <laughs> what do you say? Jericho. Trying to be funny, huh? <laughs> Round Jericho, and you remember the passage. They blew the trumpets. So on this occasion, it was during war. And in some ways, I guess it was a, an announcement of, of God's victory. And there's other examples as well, several of them. The fall of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 4.19. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpets, the alarm of war. And in this case, it's we're beat, we're defeated. So it's used in war. It was used to announce significant occasions, oftentimes in celebration. Exodus 19.19, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered with thunder. So at the giving of the law, we have trumpets announcing, pay attention, here comes the law. And that's what chapter 19 does. It prepares the people to, to hear the commandments of the Lord. There were also trumpets during festivals. Numbers 10.10. Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts and on the first day of your months, you shall blow the trumpets and blow the trumpets over the burnt offering. So they were used to announce and introduce and open up feast days. They were also used to signal, and usually signaling God's intervention in history. And I think that's what we have here. The trumpets, things are coming to a consummation. Evil is going to be brought to its end. But also there's going to be terrible, awful, horrendous conditions on the earth. So prepare yourself. And we have these trumpets, and they're blown. And we have seven of them. So we have a series of announcements to, to prepare or signals that are intended to prepare, to prepare the people. 
we'll see these as we work through these chapters. Well, how do these trumpets fit in in terms of the chronology? Let me give you a series of views. Some take them as what we would call parallel. In other words, you have the, well, let me just show them here. You have the seven seals, first of all, that would uh, be parallel during this time. And by the way, this is kind of a simplified sketch here. Uh, Various scholars who favor this parallel aspect would uh, usually start the seals first and sometimes the others later. Okay, but the idea is is they're parallel. And the view that I take is a combination of this one and another one. You'll see it in a moment. So the seals and the trumpets take place virtually, in terms of chronology, somewhat at the same time frame. Maybe a little bit differently, but not. The other option is sequential. That's the next viewpoint. And similarly, the bowls. So you have a parallel chronology there. The alternative is a sequential, and not all scholars take them as strictly sequential in the way they've got it in the simplified drawing here. But those that see a sequence would see the seven seals, and the strong point of this is this just follows the layout in the book of Revelation, followed by the seven trumpets, And we do see some other support as well. The seventh seal actually is the seven trumpets. So that has some support to it. And then if you strictly are sequential, then you would have that followed by the bowls. Does that make sense? See the distinction between the two? Parallel as opposed to sequential. And when the seals, uh, this is out of proportion, most scholars that would be sequential would have the seals maybe over here and then the trumpets over here and the bowls over here. I just put it that way because that's how the letter's kind of spelled out. Uh, Just to give you the idea. Yeah, well, some take the seals to the midpoint and some, the seals and the trumpets before the first three and a half years and then the bowls in the second three and a half. But the idea of sequence, in other words, one sets following each other. That's radically different from the other one that I just showed you, parallel. Okay, Probably the best view is a combination of these two views. Here's what I just mentioned, sequential, where you have both the seals and uh, the trumpets. The seventh seal equals the seven trumpets, and there are some that hold that both of these take place in the first half. And most of those that hold that uh, see the seventh trumpet as equaling the seven bowls as well. And there's, in fact, good scholars. I think I think Henry Morris holds this this viewpoint right here, if I remember right. Okay. I have a little problem. This I think is clearer. The seventh seal is clearly the seven trumpets. This one uh, is more of a conclusion, a theological conclusion, than bits and pieces in the text that lead you that way. Okay. Here's the first combination where you have the first six seals and then you have the seventh seal and then the seventh seal involves the first trumpet judgments or the the first sets and then uh, the seventh trumpet actually parallels the seven bowls. So you can see there's some paralleling here. Seals, parallel trumpets, parallel bowls but you also have some sequence. In other words, six seals followed by the seventh, which are the trumpets, and then you have a seventh trumpet followed by the bowls. 
See that difference there? So I'll let you pick what you feel most comfortable with. Combination number two is the one that I'm presenting. I'm not saying it's the best view because this is this is one of the most difficult problems in all of the book of Revelations. Where do all of these events fit? Because it's not real clear. We have a time frame given to some events, the three and a half years, but we still don't know whether they're the first or whether they're the second. And then where do the, all the series of judgments fit in? The view that I'm presenting is I see the seals as a panorama of the whole seven years. And I also see the seventh seal equaling or composed of the seven trumpet judgments. And they probably are, are not strictly sequential, but probably start later in the period of tribulation. And when they start, I don't know. Possibly the midpoint. I don't know. Possibly closer to the beginning, but I would see uh, some of the seals unfolding and then the trumpet judgments. The only place you have a strict paralleling is over here at the end. And one of the supports that I see for this view, for example, you do see some paralleling in the, uh, the cataclysmic events that are geophysical and that are astrophysical. They seem to be reflected in the seventh bowl as well. The seventh bowl seem to be the same judgments, or at least associated with the same judgments. Does that make sense? So that's one of the reasons I hold to, to this view. Another support for this view is these six seal judgments seem to parallel the Olivet Discourse. That's Jesus' layout of the seven-year period of time. Even the seventh trumpet but is, is very interesting. We'll get to it in chapter 11. In fact, there doesn't seem to be a, a judgment there. It talks about the kingdom. In other words, the, the Messiah has arrived. If it's a judgment, the, the judgment must be the judgment of the second coming. And if it's the judgment of the second coming, then that would be right here. So for those reasons, this seems to fit best, at least in, in my thinking. I'm open to a strong argument in the other in other directions. So that's the chronology. Next, there are a lot of interludes that we will get into. In fact, we'll get into one in uh, uh, chapter 10 will be the first one. Actually, we've already had chapter 7 is an interlude. We already looked at chapter 7. That's an interlude. In other words, it's not part of the sequence per se. God revealing some things that are not in the chronology per se. And what I mean by that, you don't have these six seal judgments and then after all the six seal judgments, now you have the 144,000, and then you have the conversion of that great multitude. I think that takes place early, and there's some little details in the text that kind of steer us in that direction. Okay? So we looked at the first five verses. Now we want to look at the first four trumpet judgments. Any questions on the chronology? I'm going to be touching on this chronology as we go through because we're going to have to ask the question, well, where does this vision, this vision follows this, but is the vision chronological? And most of the time the visions aren't. Most of these interludes usually go back. In fact, I, I think all of them, if I, I don't remember if there's one that doesn't do this, but almost all of them kind of go back and tell us, okay, during 
what you just looked at in terms of what happens on earth. Now you have this interlude and sometimes it's a vision of heaven. This is associated with what already happened. Just like chapter 7. I didn't talk about chronology then, but I see chapter 7 going back to the very beginning and there's some hints at the very beginning there that seem to give you the idea that before the winds, remember the angel holding back the winds, those seem to be representative of the judgments that are coming. Before they came, the 144,000 are sealed. So it seems that they're sealed at the very beginning. So that interlude of chapter 7 gives us a little more detail of other things that are happening that are not necessarily in sequence. Does that make sense? So most of the other interludes, when we get to chapter 11, we're going to look at these two witnesses. And we do have a time frame. So the question is, is this the second three and a half or is it the first three and a half? And the interlude seems to, okay, now it goes back and tells us of other things that took place when these trumpet judgments were taking place on earth. Following? Is this making sense? I'm confusing myself, so <laughs> I want to make sure I don't confuse you as well. So we have four trumpet judgments, verses 6 through 13. Interestingly, we had four seal judgments that kind of went together. We have four trumpet judgments that uh, have an association or a little thing that groups them together as well. What grouped the four seal judgments, the first four seal judgments? Do you remember what grouped them together? Why did we kind of call them out? Do you remember that? No, nope. you're getting close. There are four somethings. Well, each one of them was associated with living creatures, but something else. It's going to be so obvious. Hmm? Yeah, the four horsemen. Four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've heard that hundreds of times. The others don't have horses, and they're a little bit different. In fact, the fifth one are the martyrs. But we have the first four seal judgments kind of associated with one another. We have the same kind of thing with the trumpets. The first four are grouped together. And in case of the trumpets, the last three are actually grouped together as well. So they're kind of distinguished. So let's take a look at the trumpet judgments. There's the little unifying factor. All of these come in thirds, the first four. So in verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. In other words, they're going to blow the trumpet and it's to get people's attention or the reader's attention. Something momentous is going to take place. Here's the signal. Something's going to happen. And what's going to happen on earth, we have in verse 7. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And now we're going to have a series of sounding of trumpets. And the first sounded, so okay, you got the signal. What's going to happen? It's going to tell us. And there came hail, not an invading army, something even worse. Hail and fire mixed with blood. And by the way, I take these, and I'm going to emphasize this later on. There's your golden altar, by the way, with the incense rising. So if you want an image to put in your mind that's... A reconstruction of probably what was in, in the temple. I take all of these literally. Remember, you start, and if there's nothing in the text to steer you away from a literal interpretation, then you take the passages literally. 
So when it talks about fire mixed with blood, I take it literally. It doesn't seem to. It doesn't say like blood or looks like blood. Something horrendous is taking place. Hail and fire, literal hail, literal fire mixed with blood. Uh, how that fulfills itself, I'm not sure. Maybe as it strikes animals and people, now it's mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burnt up. So it uh, starts fires all over the place, primarily in forests. And a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. Now, if you just think about it, I mean, just imagine some catastrophe, things falling out of the sky, fire coming down from heaven, basically, and large stones of hail all over the earth, and the result of this judgment is one-third of all, basically, plant life burnt up. Uh, That's all of North and South America, all of the plants in those two continents gone. Now, I'm not saying that that's where it's going to be confined. I'm giving you the, the kind of a picture to imagine the destruction here. This will take place worldwide, and you'll have all of this everywhere. So a third of the United States is going to be destroyed in terms of the plant life. third of South America, a third of Asia, a third of Europe, just all over the world. A third of Africa destroyed as a result of this. That's going to cause all kinds of other problems. It's hard to conceive of how horrendous this period of time is. And this is just the first trumpet judgment. They're talking about food prices going up because we have a so-called drought in the United States this year, and prices are going to go up. Multiply that worldwide, losing a third of all the crops. It's mind-boggling. Every one of these are like that. I'm not going to say it over and over again, but just imagine, think through, as you read the text, just think through how horrendous this period of time is. That's how horrendous sin is to God. That's what we need to always remind ourselves. Don't get caught up on the imagery and the uh, awfulness of it, but always be reminded this is a picture of what God thinks is sin. This is how horrendous sin is to Him. So we have hail and fire destroying vegetation. The next one, and the second angel sounded. What did he sound? His trumpet. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, probably from all of the animals that were killed. And we're again, we're talking globally. Imagine a third of the Pacific Ocean. Imagine a third of the Atlantic Ocean. All of the life being destroyed. Again, how much are we dependent on not only the food supply, but all kinds of other things that go on, uh, transportation and other, you know, all our, a lot of our oil comes from the Middle East. What if those tankers can't get here? Shuts down all supplies here. So these are horrendous. Third of the earth. This is on a continental scale. Burning. Destruction. A mountain in the sea or sea life being destroyed. On that, imagine Mount St. Helens on a continental scale where much of the top of Mount St. Helens exploded 
It wasn't thrown into the sea, but what is described here is even greater than a Mount St. Helens. Or if you know historically, uh, Mount Pinatubo or Krakatoa. Uh, there's been several historical events that entire mountains were were basically blown away. Imagine this all over the world. So you have these things happening in rapid succession all over the world. That's the second trumpet judgment. So a third of sea life is destroyed. Just a little visual there of this mountain exploding. Again, uh, I don't see anything in there, so we're having some major geophysical displacements of large pieces of land being destroyed. Okay, that part, yeah, that's good. Good observation. And something like, good, a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Something like a mountain, I don't know, what is something like a mountain? Something huge thrown into the sea? A land mass, uh, maybe a tectonic event of some sort? Okay, yeah, good observation. When I say literal, though, we're not spiritualizing the, the event. We're seeing that John is saying maybe it's not just a mountain itself, but some displacement there. John didn't have the word tectonic in his vocabulary. The next one is the one that I use as an example to distinguish from another star that we'll look at, verse 10. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. Now it's like a torch again. Thank you, Lindsay. And it fell on a a third of the rivers. But whatever this thing that is falling, it's, it's a great star. That is literal. In other words, something out of the heavens is falling to the earth. Now, we're going to come back to this word, and I'm going to give you some examples. This word can be used in a non-literal sense. And we're going to look at chapter 9, where we're going to have similar language. And in that context, we're going to see that the star in chapter 9, verse 1, is probably non-literal. And it's used in that sense in other parts of Scripture. So it can have a non-literal, but in this context, I don't think there are any clues in the context to tell us that this one is non-literal. So I take it as something out of the sky. Now, if you do a word study on the the Greek word, stare, and I'll give you a brief overview of that when we get to chapter 9. That word, there, there was not a New Testament word that distinguished between planets and stars. There was not a word that distinguished between comets or meteors and stars. It was the same word that was used for them. So more than likely, this is not a star in that, in the sense that we think of stars. More than likely, this is a body, a heavenly body. In fact, I've got a photograph of a real one, a NASA one. Oh, here I, here I have that. Literally, they didn't distinguish between stars, planets, Comets, asteroids, meteors. More than likely what we have here is a, an asteroid or a meteor striking the earth, doing something like that. There's an artist's conception of that. Now we have been to Arizona. There's a, um, what's it called? I don't want to say Crater Lake, but there is a Crater Lake in Oregon. In Arizona, there's a, a similar crater where a, a meteorite struck the earth, and it, the crater is probably twice the length of this building here. 
or more than that probably. And they estimate that that was that was probably something in the in the range of maybe uh, the size of a football or a basketball, and it just left a huge crater. So imagine something huge, huge enough to destroy what it says in verse ten, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood or Bitterness. And a third of the waters became Wormwood or Bitter. And men died from the waters, obviously, because they were made bitter. Now, a third of all of the planet's water supply gone. So what's that going to do? That's also going to affect all of agriculture. That's also going to affect human beings, and people are going to die. In fact, uh, as they drank this, it's contaminated in some way, it appears. People died from drinking it. It's not just salty. It, it, sound, it seems like there's some other phenomenon taking place as a result of it. But imagine a third of all of the available fresh water no longer available, so there's going to be scarcity of water. And if this takes place... Even past the midpoint, you're talking about the rest of this period of time, people are going to be struggling to find fresh water, and it's going to be in short supply. Okay? Yeah, bitterness, basically. When Chernobyl uh, went off, people tried to tie Chernobyl with this and did some word stuff, but I don't think it refers to Chernobyl. It's too small. We're talking about global here. Well, let's begin and just introduce the uh, fourth angel, and then we'll come back after a break. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten. And again, it's the same word there, austere, same Greek word. But in this case, these probably refer to planets and stars. In other words, there's some obscuring there. They were smitten so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. So we're going to have an obscuring of the skies. That's going to cause a lot of other phenomenon related not only to agriculture, but all of business. And, and lighting and everything that's related to activity in the daytime. So all kinds of activities are going to be curtailed here during these, this judgment here. So some astrophysical effects. That's not real clear as to what God's going to do here with this judgment, but we have the scale of it. And again, it's continental in scale. It's a third of everything. So these are the first four trumpet judgments, all defined by this idea of a third of the entire planet. But even that, it's unimaginably huge. Now, just looking ahead a little bit, when we get to the bowl judgments, the bowl judgments are not limited like they are here. Here's just a third of the earth. By the time we get to the bowl judgments in chapter 16, it appears that Everything is just coming to a, a conclusion, a close. Everything is basically being destroyed. The only thing left, basically, are people that can endure, and the only thing left is for the Lord to return and renew the heavens and the earth. 
And that's part of what He does in establishing the kingdom. So it's almost like God is wiping clean by burning off all the uh, evil and sin. Lindsay, did you have a... Uh, it appears, yeah, I, it appears that these things continue. That's why it gets so horrendously worse as, as things go on. Okay? Well, let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll look at the next three trumpet judgments.